0: Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are making the global discussion. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my columns. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation.
1: The early disruptive years of tech growth in Silicon Valley was clearly fueled by a mixture of idealism and hubris. Idealism that tech would solve all of our problems and hubris that tech did not want to be molested or slowed down by government intervention.
0: This week's edition comes from Facebook's headquarters in Silicon Valley, where I've been talking to Nick Clegg, who was Britain's Deputy Prime Minister between 2010 and 2015, but recently relocated to California to guide Facebook's global policy and communications. For me, visiting Silicon Valley was a trip down memory lane, or more like a trip down somewhere that used to be a lane, but it's now a motorway. I first visited the area in 1976 at the age of 13 when my father had a visiting fellowship at Stanford University. And back then, Silicon Valley barely existed as a concept, so Palo Alto was just a sunny, sleepy university town. But Stanford, in many ways, turned out to be the incubator of a tech revolution that's transformed the world. And you can get a sense of how momentous it is if you take the suburban railway out from San Francisco. Each little railway station now seems to be the gateway to a gigantic global company... So you get off at Mountain View for Google, the next stop is Sunnyvale for Apple, and a couple of stops back towards the city is Menlo Park, home to Facebook. This is a company that only started 15 years ago, but now has 2.7 billion people using its services. That's more than a third of the world's population. So because Facebook is now such a crucial medium for global communications, it's also deeply enmeshed in politics, and hence the decision to hire Nick Clegg. After a day talking to Facebook's policy people, I sat down with Sir Nick, as he now is, to talk about Facebook. And this, too, was sort of a trip down memory lane since I first met him in Brussels almost 20 years ago when he was an up-and-coming young member of the European Parliament. Within a decade, he was Deputy Prime Minister of Britain. Now he's at Facebook. So I started by asking him if he felt he was still in a familiar political world or whether he was now on new and deeply unfamiliar ground.
1: Both, oddly enough. The sheer velocity and scale of the things that a company like Facebook has to deal with and lots of things that no company's had to deal with before just because you're grappling with social, ethical, political, almost, I mean, without sounding very pompous about almost sort of philosophical problems sometimes about... What speech is acceptable? What speech is not acceptable? What is the boundary between the data that we use so that people see ads that are relevant to them but do so in a way which doesn't encroach on their privilege? All these kind of things. And doing so on such, such a huge scale feels familiar, if you like, from my political background because politics or certainly government was also involved just juggling a huge volume of often rather invidious decisions where no choice is going to keep everybody happy. So to that extent, some of the sort of muscle memory from my sort of, what, almost 20 years in politics feels very familiar. And then in other respects, it just could not be more different. Not only is California very, very, very different to Putney in almost all respects, I feel very, very European here, perhaps more than I expect. All the cliches which many observers have made about how You know, our common language actually camouflages differences rather than amplifying similarities is true. And I'm now working in an engineering company. I think it's what folks sometimes perhaps, or at least maybe I am, underestimated is that this is a company like many of the tech companies here in Silicon Valley, which were founded and run by engineers. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is an engineer, and they think like engineers. And that's, that's a very – I haven't worked with engineers before. I've always worked with politicians. and I've always worked with folk who draw on different sort of disciplines. So it's an intriguing mix of the very familiar and the very, very unfamiliar.
0: And in terms of philosophy, since you use the word, I mean, the cliché about this place, Silicon Valley, and the people who found it mm. and run it, is they're all basically libertarians. Mm. They don't really see much of a role for government. Whereas you came from a European yeah. background, a social democratic background. Yeah. Centre-left in European yeah. terms, which yeah. takes the idea that government will totally. have a role in regulating speech much more for granted, totally.
1: yeah? Totally. Well, I think there are a number of interesting things to, to dwell on, which is firstly, of course, in the same way that Europeans, and I probably count European, sort of mainland Europeans, almost more than your archetypal Brit, but Europeans will be instinctively suspicious of the market. Your average American is instinctively suspicious of government, and so... In the same way that there is always, just lurking below the surface in many European circles, a suspicion of too much commerce, too much profit, too much naked market competition. There is just a long American tradition, of course. And you feel it here in California because you're so far away from the capital of political authority. It's right. literally a continent away. So in many ways, it doesn't surprise me that these tech companies flourished here when they started, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago because... It feels slightly out of sight, out of mind, because you're far away from DC. And so I think it is undoubtedly true that to characterize certainly the early disruptive years of tech growth in Silicon Valley, it was clearly fueled by a mixture of idealism and hubris, idealism that tech would solve all our problems and hubris that tech did not want to be molested or slowed down by government intervention. I think that has changed dramatically, and it certainly changed dramatically in this company, candidly. Otherwise, why on earth would they have employed someone like me? And the reason why Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg reached out to me, you know, I discovered this in the lengthy conversations I had with them before uh, agreeing to join in the summer of 2018, is precisely because they realise that the game's up as far as saying we're going to, you know, sup with a very long spoon and not deal with regulators and governments. Society has every right to ensure that there are Proper rules in place, just like any other industry in the online world, and these are very young companies. Roger Federer became number one in men's tennis two days before Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook. So the Federer era is longer than the Facebook era, right. at least until now, and it's grown at this astonishing rate, catering now to around two point seven billion people a month.
0: It's a third of the world. Yeah, basically. it
1: is no wonder that a company like that. Partly through mistakes which it's made, whether it's Cambridge Analytica or not in keeping with everybody else, not detecting what the Russians were trying to get up to in the 2016 US presidential election, learning from mistakes, but also just stumbling, if you like, because of this extraordinary growth, or colliding perhaps with some really difficult questions which are intensely social and political and ethical in their sort of character. And that's why I actually think it's a really smart thing that Mark Zuckerberg specify the areas where he thinks there do need to be new rules of the road on privacy, on elections, on data portability, on content moderation, hate speech. He's gone out and said, no, you know, the days where these companies could just kind of make up their own rules now need to give way to legislators and lawmakers and regulators playing their role as well. And I, and I th- one of the reasons why this job is so interesting is that if I can play however modestly, a small role in trying to bridge these two worlds of politics and tech, because the political class can shout at tech, and boy, do they, and I get that. But eventually, the shouting's also got to give way to doing something and really doing the painstaking job of regulating differently.
0: When you said they realised the game was up or that collided with reality, do you think the 2016 presidential oh, election, that was the turning point? Really? Ma-
1: massively so, yeah. I think that was a hugely important moment. I think there was a sort of idealism, really which for a long time was based on this belief that the very virtue of being able to use these new technologies to express yourself, to communicate with others, to create groups and movements with your friends and people close to you, in and of itself would always be a virtuous thing. And of course. Like any technology, technology is used for good and bad. I mean, a car is a wonderful technology. You put a terrorist behind the wheel of a car and it's a murder weapon. It, technology's always got a light and a dark side because human nature has a light and a dark side.
0: But it took a while to sink in, didn't it? Because Zuckerberg's first reaction said yeah. that it's almost grotesque to think or weird to think that we had an impact on the 2016 election. Yeah, And I th- now I think there's a feeling oh. that... Well, actually...
1: Well, look, I think you're quite, quite right to say that the initial response, which was of sort of disbelief or, you know, came across almost as dismissing the issue, was clearly given away to a much, much more nuanced and sophisticated view of the degree to which interference was attempted by...
0: Russia in uh, particular. Russia in
1: particular. Now, look, there's a completely separate question which academics really basically have to resolve. Did Did it work? Did it actually make any difference? Now, that, to be honest, the jury's out on that, and there's quite a lot of evidence that, for instance, you know, these famous bubble effects where you get people reinforcing their own prejudices, actually quite a lot of the evidence shows, I think Reuters Institute has done some research on this, that the biggest feedback loops weren't actually on social media or on your news feed, but were on people who were consuming a diet of cable news and presidential tweets or the tweets from some candidates. And the jury's out on that. It's had a rather fitful start, but we're trying to give data to academics in various universities to look at the link between social media consumption and voting behaviour. But in a sense, whether it did or didn't isn't the point. A company like this has a profound responsibility to make sure that those who try to interfere, whether it's Iran, whether it's Russia, whether it's anyone else in domestic elections, that we build up our defences to stop that. And I think the company's got a hell of a lot better at doing that. And you're quite right to say that 2016 was a real body blow, followed, of course, later by something which also rocked confidence in this company, which was Cambridge Analytica. And these things were clearly searing experiences and have led to huge changes, you know, which will take years to work through.
0: And it also means that coming to the next presidential election, which we're a year away from, Facebook is now a big political issue and you're getting attacked from both sides. I don't know whether Donald Trump has attacked you by name, but he has complained in speeches about social media being unfair to the right, which is a big theme here. What's Facebook's response to that?
1: So there's a number of features to this. There's the issue we've just talked about, which Mm -hmm. is Facebook using its clout and its size and its technological ingenuity and working with other companies and working with law enforcement, working collaboratively to strengthen the external defences of, in this case, American democracy, but of course it could be British or French or German, to stop external interference. And as I say, we now employ 35,000 people in various ways to try and reinforce the integrity of how Facebook's apps and services work, not least at election time. It's actually a very interesting example of where I think, to be fair to Facebook, we certainly haven't arrived at perfection, but we are at least trying to put our money where our mouth is. The amount of money which will be spent this year alone by Facebook on election integrity, and as we do identifying now over 99% of ISIS and Daesh-related terrorist material before anyone reports it through automated machine learning systems and so on. The amount of money this company is spending, all of that this year is more than the total revenues of the company when it was floated at the oh. time of its IPO. So that's a massive turnaround. I would distinguish between that and I think what you're alluding to, which is how do domestic politicians express themselves on our services, or
0: indeed on YouTube and Twitter and so on. And, and the right here seems and there, there, and to there, say that you're deplatforming the there people.
1: A, there, is a, there is a ferocious argument where the right say... You're a bunch of millennial, bleeding-heart leftists from California who basically don't like Republicans and don't like Donald Trump, and you're sort of allowing your prejudices to show. And then the opposite side of the ideological persuasion, so the progressives and the Democrats say, you're allowing our opponents, like Donald Trump, too much free reign on our platforms. And we get this from both sides of the spectrum. It's almost week by week, the pendulum swings from condemnation, from the right condemnation to the left. I have to say, you know, as someone who's employed to oversee a lot of my role in Facebook is to oversee all of the company's policies from anti-terrorism efforts to free speech issues, to content issues, to Mm -hmm. data protection, you name it, uh, and how we then communicate to the outside world. I think we're in the only place we logically can be, which is to err on the side of free expression even where people don't like it, but at the same time putting in place quite hard parameters beyond which it's not acceptable. And so, But Elizabeth
0: Warren's challenge in specific, you actually allow people to lie on the platform and specifically she accuses Donald Trump of lying. And as I understand it, your defence is partly it's not up to us to adjudicate what's true and what's not true. But also, even if a politician is lying, if they're a major political figure, it's not up to us to take that down. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, given, and boy, do I know this, when people say politicians fib, it's not that a politician says that inflation is 1.6% but it's actually 2.3%. That's not what happens in politics. What happens is politicians will make exaggerated, half-true, mischaracterized assumptions about their opponent's character. Values, record, plans. I mean, that's- but in, in the
0: case of the they- things the Dems are worked up about it now, they're saying he's making false claims about Hunter Biden's activities in Ukraine. Now, presumably, are those not verifiable one way or another? Well, look, we're
1: saying it's not our job to intervene. And I don't think anyone is under any illusions that when Donald Trump says something which is of questionable veracity, there's a, there's, a, there's a vast industry which will point that out, including, by the way, on our platform. Because our platforms, like any communication platforms, are platforms where people will debate these things. We just don't think it's for us to start entering into the political fray and saying because that claim is questionable or is not evidenced or is statistically contradicted by this or that. We will not allow you to say that to the people who you are seeking to appeal to. Now, look, I think it's quite different, candidly, in countries and cultures which don't have a free press, vibrant opposition and open free speech. But in mature democracies, I strongly suspect that if a private company like Facebook, which is constantly accused of being too big and too powerful Mm. were to, on top of all its other roles, arrogate to itself the self-appointed role of being an adjudicator of political truth, I actually think many of the same people criticising us now would say we're overstepping the mark.
0: And yeah, of course, you're global players. And the thing I'd like to sort of probe a bit is this distinction between political speech where you try to be as tolerant as possible because, you know, it's not up to you to adjudicate what a politician can say, and hate speech where you try to crack down. Mm. And we're in an era of, sort of heightened polarisation, populism, yep. etc., where some of the world's most prominent politicians yep. are accused of using hate speech. You yep. think of Bolsonaro in Brazil, yep. who said if he saw a gay couple kissing in the street, he'd punch yep. them. Modi and some of yep. the anti-Muslim stuff put out not so much by him directly, but certainly by the BJP. How do you adjudicate there?
1: Well, I think the, the, the first answer strike though it might, might sound is we try and do so as transparently as possible so we have these things which no one knows about but they are treated like sort of tablets of stone in this facebook building which are, they're called community standards and they set out all the standards by which we adjudicate whether we think it is acceptable for something to appear on our platforms or not and those standards cover hate speech incitement to violence intellectual property abuse you name it and there are various ways that we can deal with things that transgress those community standards. We can remove them, but also we can deprecate the content so people don't see it very visibly on their newsfeed. We also, of course, work with fact-checkers around the world to sort of fact-check something that has gone viral, I don't know, um, a claim that you can cure cancer by eating large amounts of ginger, which is one oh. I just came across just recently. That, unfortunately, was something which was seen by millions of people. But one of the things we need to do is get better at intervening quickly before these things go viral and making it very, very clear by putting up filters on people's screens to say this is not right, this has been fact-checked, as false, and so on. So we've got community standards, and we revise those community standards along with academics and experts. Every couple of weeks we publish the minutes of those meetings, and then we act on them. And we have about 15,000 folk who work on content moderation, and they, combined with our automated systems, try and identify content that transgresses those community standards and refer them and act on them and so on. A lot of this, by the way, is done increasingly because of the sheer volume of content. Because the volume is so great, we do rely very heavily on automated systems. And the automated systems are very good at identifying terrorist-related material because a lot of it has very similar visual and oral signature features. Almost all of it is removed before it reports it. Fake accounts. We remove over a million fake accounts every day. Now, a lot of these fake accounts are just churned out automatically, and they're often aimed to try and introduce sort of financial fraud into the system. But a lot of that's done in an automated way, but you also need human intervention because one person's hate speech might be another person's free expression. And where that line draws isn't the same in one country after the next. So, I don't know, in Germany, the law says you cannot deny the Holocaust. That is not the case here in the US or in the UK. When I was in Scandinavia speaking to decision-makers over the summer, the big gripe about Facebook was that we don't allow nipples, other than in very particular circumstances, to be shown on our platform. And they felt this was rather prudish. This was American prudery offending slightly more liberal standards on nudity in Scandinavia. And we try and reflect all of this in these community standards, and we try and apply the community standards as evenly as possible.
0: And can you apply them different globally, so that you can block Holocaust denial in Germany through geo-blocking, yes. but allow it just so, across
1: the board in France? Yes, So we have to, of course.
0: How about nipples? Can you allow them in Scandinavia?
1: There isn't a law at the moment in Scandinavia that says we have to show nipples. But if there was a nipple law, we would have to work out some way of abiding by that. So we geo-block is a very good example, a Holocaust denial such that that cannot appear on our platforms in Germany, but we don't do that elsewhere. But needless to say, a company like Facebook thinks as a general matter of principle, it would be desirable if we don't end up with just this absolute sort of dizzying patchwork of different and often conflicting approaches to content standards. But of course, that's the world we live in because the world thinks very differently depending on where you sit.
0: And it strikes me that essentially you've got a more or less impossible task, there because once you've got 2.7 billion users and you're central to political debate now because you're one of the main means of communication between people and politicians use you and so on, if you're trying to maintain standards in political debate all over the world, even if you've got 30,000 or 35,000 fact-checkers and loads of machines, I mean, you can't really, can you? I
1: think we can do it on a bigger scale... And at greater velocity than you might imagine, where we can use automated systems to identify terrorist content, fake accounts. We're getting really very good at that. I think where it gets hard, candidly, is not so much the scale. It's just that when you're having to deal with content where there's just dispute about whether it is acceptable or not. Yeah, the degree of
0: cultural nuance you would need in each place.
1: Yeah, but, you know, that's why we have, whether it's fact-checkers from different uh, jurisdictions or teams in different parts of the
0: world. Are you worried that if you don't, get some of these issues right uh, or win the argument that the future of the company is threatened in some way. Warren is talking about breaking it up. Is Facebook under threat, do you think, from political change? Oh, I think there's clearly a, a
1: real head of steam, not least, interestingly enough, in its own domestic market in the US. And I think a lot of that, I have to say, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with the instinct because people, quite understandably, are wary of big companies and then they've got every reason to be critical of Facebook about what happened in 2016 A US election about Cambridge Analytica and so on and there've been data breaches which worry people so it's quite right that with this tremendous success comes very aggressive scrutiny I just, I personally feel this, and of course, now with my sort of corporate hat on, I would say this anyway, but I genuinely don't think creating one big company, Instagram, and another big company, Facebook, deals with all of these dilemmas we talked about. It doesn't deal with the issue of election integrity. It doesn't deal with the issue of whether populist politicians use WhatsApp in a bad or malicious way. It doesn't deal with this issue of hate speech or how you geo block laws related to Holocaust denial. None of those dilemmas go away by just saying, we don't like these companies, we want to break them up. And that's why, in the end, I don't think there's any replacement placement for, in a sense, the much more tedious and time-consuming job of introducing the right regulation. And this is where I think, at the rate we're going, I think the EU, oddly enough, even though the EU is not home to any of the big Chinese or US tech companies, oddly enough, Europe, I think, is certainly ahead of the American curve, if I could put it like that, in moving beyond just sort of yelling at tech to actually dwelling on what regulation would look like of these data-intensive industries. Now, There's all sorts of things which I hope Europe could get right, but also could equally get wrong, because I hope Europe does well in the future and doesn't regulate itself into a sort of slow lane.
0: Okay, last question. You know, you've had a year out of the whole Mm. maelstrom of British and European politics in which you spent your career... Does sitting here on the west coast of California make you feel more sanguine about it or more disbelieving about what's going on in the UK? Has it changed your perspective at all?
1: Well, I should stress that I'm not, you know, I can only speak for myself. No, you're not speaking for Facebook at this point. I'm not speaking for Facebook, but equally I think it's unrealistic for me to somehow wash my mouth out and never have any sort of views about Brexit, because they're so well known. I've written a book about the subject saying how to stop Brexit. So, look, my view, having lived here for some time, hasn't changed in the slightest. Look, at the end of the day, geography matters where you are physically located in the world, which neighbourhood you are physically located through millions of years of tectonic evolution really, really matters. There is a reason why Mexico and Canada trade more with the United States than they ever will with the United Kingdom, or why little Belgium or little Ireland trade much, much more with the United Kingdom than giants like the US do, because they're near each other. And that dilemma, if you like, is not going to change whatever the Brexiteers say. And I think this whole Brexit undertaking is going to collide with some very profound geographical facts of life, which are not going to be altered by any vote in Parliament. I don't really see what alternative there is. If you're a Brexiteer, which I'm clearly not, the only logical place to end up is to seek to gain advantage over the rest of the European Union by undercutting European Union standards. Otherwise, why would you do it? Why would you rant and rail against European rules I can tell you one thing. I don't think the Conservative Party is ranting about European rules because they want to improve upon them or make them more stringent. They actually want to undercut them. My worry is if Britain ends up doing what I think is inevitably going to be attempted by Brexiteers, which is to enter into some sort of regulatory arbitrage with the European Union, my fear then is you will just get immense animosity across the channel because the European Union will have to then protect itself and retaliate. In short, I can't say that distance or time has made me any less worried about what all this will mean for the country I love and come from.
0: That was Nick Clegg, ending with some thoughts on Europe from California. And that's it for this week. Next week, I'll be in Singapore, and I hope to record something interesting from there. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Review. Until next week...